0: Turn with me this morning to uh, Psalm 117. In the next two weeks, next week and the following, we will uh, finish our series in the book of Lamentations, and then we'll go on to the book of Acts uh, looking ahead. But today, uh, again, we take up a, a Psalm of the Month, which for September is uh, Psalm 117. So here, God's holy, infallible word. Here from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. This is quite a a distinguished psalm in in several ways. Uh, It is, as you might have guessed, the shortest psalm in the Psalter. Uh, As such, it's also the shortest chapter uh, in the Bible. now, the, aside from the Psalms, largely the chapters are not uh, inspired. they Their later uh, addition to our Bibles, very helpful, uh, the chapters and verses. Um, but it's also, there, there are also 594 chapters before Psalm 117 and 594 chapters after Psalm 117. So it's also the middle chapter uh, in our Bibles as we have it, um, an interesting fact. Again, this is a very short Psalm, but it's, it's huge in its scope as I hope we'll see this morning. In some, way, I think, uh, in some ways, I think Psalm 117 summarizes the whole message and call of, of the Bible, and as such, it's an appropriate middle chapter in our Bibles. Matthew Henry, at, at the heading of his commentary on Psalm 117, notes that it was a popular psalm in his congregation. It was sung often, um, and he notes that he hopes that was because not, uh, not because of the shortness of it, uh, but because of the sweetness of it. Uh, the psalm is simply a, a command, a call to praise, to worship the Lord uh, with two reasons, two simple reasons given. A call to praise with two simple reasons. And I like to take those up uh, out of order, those elements this morning. So first, I want to look at the reasons for this call to worship. Uh, secondly, look at the call itself. And then finally, uh, consider the object of the call. Who Who is... Uh, being addressed, and what ought we to learn from that uh, this morning. So first, if if you look in your outline in your bulletins, the reasons for the call. Look at verse 1 again, which is the the call to praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples, for, reason number 1, his loving kindness is great toward us. Uh, I want to focus on that word, loving kindness. In the the title there in your bulletin, on, on point A, uh, you don't see that English word, but I have the Hebrew word there, uh, said, And that's because I, I want us to think about that word. Uh, because it's not a word that's very easily uh, or, or very well uh, fully translated into English. Uh, it doesn't easily translate. Uh, but it's a huge and very important concept in the Old Testament. 250 times in the Old Testament we read about God's hesed. Uh It's translated variously. Um, in English translations over the years, mercy was used a lot, uh, love, um, uh, grace, and so on. Um, there are different Hebrew words for those simpler concepts, um, and, and it's, it's a challenge to translate it in English, uh, trying to capture all of these nuances it has, mercy, love, and so on. Um, some translations have adopted and coined, or even coined, uh, a, a word or a phrase To consistently translate Hesed. So that's in the NAS that I'm reading from here. Uh, Loving kindness is the word they've coined to always use. Uh, If you read that word in the NAS, it's the word Hesed behind it. Uh, The ESV has what I think is maybe the best translation in English. Uh, They've chosen to use steadfast love. So you read steadfast love 250 times in the ESV. That's God's Hesed. One of the reasons that these various English words—mercy, love, and so on—fall short of this this big concept. Is in part a big part of the, the definition of this word is that it points us to God's covenant love, uh, his his covenant love. In other words, it's it's absolute, it's unconditional, it's his unchanging mercy towards his people. Uh, we tend to think of these words that are used. Uh, love, loving kindness, and so on, as, as feelings or as dispositions towards someone. He was kind to me, or I have, I have feelings of love towards this person. Um, but Hesed is based on the promise of God. Uh, it's based on, on God shedding his own blood in the person of Jesus to seal this this forever unending, unalterable grace towards you. It's, it's a love written in, blo- in blood. Uh, it's, it's not just a disposition. Uh, It's unchanging. Uh, A writer uh, for Ligonier, in in trying to describe this concept of Hesed, writes this, God binds himself to act toward you with Hesed, And he is utterly faithful to his own self-commitment, his covenant. To put it another way, our hope that God will love us to the uttermost and forever is not founded on our ability to keep his commands, but rather it's founded on God's ability to keep being God. It's, it's his own self commitment, his, his covenant love. Uh, probably the most magnificent statement of God's steadfast love, his has said, in the Bible, uh, using that word, is Psalm 136. Uh, we sang this psalm uh, a few weeks ago. This is the one that has the call and response. Every other verse says what? For his steadfast love, his has said, endures forever. And so the whole psalm uh, is, is about. All these things that reveal God's Hesed, his steadfast love. And, and it challenges you to see absolutely everything in the world, all of history, uh, related to God's said his steadfast love. So it describes God making the heavens, the sun, the moon, the stars. Why? For his steadfast love for you endures forever. It describes God, God gives food. He cares for the creation because of his said for you. And it even says, think about this God raises and and overthrows kingdoms because of his steadfast love for you. And certainly implies that that ultimately God sent the Lord Jesus to live and die in your place because of his steadfast love for you. Uh, Psalm 23 also uses this word. uh, Maybe you don't know where in our English Bibles, but you know the last, uh, you know how that psalm ends. Surely goodness and mercy. That's said goodness and said, Will follow me all the days of my life. That's what said does. Follow is really too soft an English word there. The Hebrew word means to pursue, to hunt. God's mercy, his love relentlessly pursues you. Remember the poem, the hound of heaven. Because it is said. Look briefly at the adjective that the psalmist attaches to it here as well. For his loving kindness is what? It's great that's a Hebrew word that means to be, to be stronger or to prevail. It's used in the Old Testament of uh, one army prevailing over another army. Uh, it's used in Psalm 103. Bo- both of these words are used there. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great, there's this adjective, so massive, so limitless is his steadfast love, his has said, for those who fear him. Uh, the word is great is also used in the, the flood account. Uh, in Genesis uh, just in a practical way to say the waters prevailed over even the mountains. And that word used here to describe God's said suggests that God's loving kindness, his steadfast love will prevail in your life. Over all of your sin, all of your struggles, all of your sorrows over death, over hell, over everything. Uh, His loving kindness is great. Now if I were to Speak of a, a round basketball or, or of white snow, that would be what? Those are those are kind of redundant statements, right? Sometimes we depends we speak redundantly like that for rhetorical emphasis. Well, to say that God's loving kindness has said is great; it's it's stronger than anything. It prevails over all and forever. Is redundant. Uh, that's that's the very nature of his love. Because Jesus has died and risen, because God has covenanted himself to you in Jesus Christ, that's the very nature of his love and his grace. It's unconditional, it's everlasting, it's without boundaries and limit. It's blessedly redundant for our our good. Uh, This is precisely what Paul so powerfully discusses in Romans 8. There in Romans 8, Paul uh, makes the point that your salvation depends on, on the the choice and the promise of God alone. And then he asks a series of, uh, famously, th- these series of redund- or not redundant not re- rhetorical questions. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Then Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is, is there anything that could disqualify you then? From God's love, from his mercy. No is, is his implied answer. It is God who justifies. And then um, uh, Paul, Paul asks uh, uh, later, most famously perhaps, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, what, what could possibly separate you then from the hased of God? His answer, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the hesed, the steadfast love of God. Maybe that's the greatest statement without using the word because it's in Greek uh, on the hesed of God for you. That's the first thing you have, the first reason for this call in this psalm. Secondly, uh, letter B in your outline, God's everlasting truth. Uh, look at verse 2 again. Again, the, the call is to praise the Lord for his loving kindness is great toward us. And secondly, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. The truth of the Lord. Another really big concept uh, in the scriptures. Not simply truth here as, as opposed, in, in a narrow sense, as opposed to telling a lie, but an attribute of God. It's what God is in and of himself. He is the God of truth. It flows into everything He does, everything He says. He's utterly reliable. Um, some translations, because of that that nuance, have uh, faithfulness here—the faithfulness of the Lord—and that's, that's a good translation as well. It's part of the part of the concept. Uh, Berkhoff, in his systematic theology, takes up this this concept and uh, the, the truth of the Lord and tries to show the the bigness and the philosophical significance of the truth of the Lord. He Argues it as, as three important senses all at once. It is truth in the metaphysical sense. That is, that God is a God. He is the God, um, the true God, all that God should be. He, he is the God who is there, in, in the words of Francis Schaeffer. Uh, he, the truth of God is, is truth in an ethical sense. God speaks the truth, uh, He's absolutely reliable. And then he's the truth of God is, is truth in, in a logical sense. What he means by that is that God knows everything as it really is. He perfectly knows reality and as such he's, he's the foundation of all knowledge. Not just knowledge in a religious realm, not just moral knowledge, but all knowledge, scientific knowledge. I think you can't overstate the significance of, of knowing and belonging to the God of truth. The truth of the Lord, and and knowing that the the privilege and the security and the peace there is in knowing the truth of the Lord. There's a movie in 2014 about Stephen Hawking, the famous and brilliant physicist, cosmologist. Uh, The movie was was titled The Theory of Everything. Um, That was part of Hawking's pursuit, was a theory theory of everything, which is a technical term. It's a a theory, a principle, mathematically a, a set of equations that would fit all of physics and cosmology together. Gravity and relativity and the expansion of the universe and all these things. Ask Ming Wu if you want to know more about that. But how do you fit together? How do you summarize everything that exists? What, what ties it all together is, is the basic question. And Hawking was not a Christian. We, we who know the truth know a key piece of the philosophical theory of everything is the true and living God. In one sense, he is the theory of everything. He right? doesn't give us mathematical equations uh, necessarily or all answers to our scientific questions. But he's the foundation of absolutely everything, all knowledge, all meaning. Um, and don't take for granted the peace and the joy and the meaning the purpose and security that that gives you. So these are the two reasons for the call to praise in this psalm. Not such a short and and simple psalm, is it? Not not such a small psalm. It gives us a massive foundation upon which uh, to praise him. So let's look at that call, the call itself, secondly, on your outline. Uh, Look at verse 1 again. Praise the Lord, all nations, laud him, all peoples. And then the psalm again ends with the Hebrew, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I want to give thought to that, that simple call for a moment. It's one that we read, we sing often in the psalms, praise the Lord. One that we can easily skip over, easily not think deeply about. The command, the call to praise the Lord. Think about the fact that God's call to praise him, to worship him, is seen by the world, the unbelieving world, as an oppressive call by, by an egomaniac God? Why does he need everyone's worship all the time? Maybe at best it's seen as a requirement to, to just dutifully acknowledge him and honor him, whether we feel like it or not. In some sense, that, that statement is, is not wrong as far as it goes. It is a duty, but it's a shriveled and impoverished view of true worship. Just think about the fact that, that everyone in the world, including you and I, we, we praise what we value and cherish and enjoy that, that just spills out of you uh, naturally. That view was stunning. That view, that, that food was delicious. And you and I were created to value and love and cherish your creator. That, that is your highest good and joy, the highest joy imaginable and possible for you. And as a sinner and, and a rebel, you now cherish him as, as redeemer, even though you deserve his wrath, though you live in a fallen and broken and unpredictable and dangerous and sad in many ways world. Uh, you've received him as the God of said towards you, steadfast, unending, unbreak, unbreakable love. You've received him as absolute truth, the foundation and security and peace of all existence. The author and goal and, and meaning of all of life. And so worshiping God and praising Him is not merely getting up on Sunday morning and and trudging off to church and and going through the motions of acknowledging Him. It is more fundamentally, as our catechism begins, enjoying Him forever. It's enjoying God. You found the highest good, the greatest joy imaginable in, in a God who loves you and lavishes you with grace unconditionally and irrepressibly. And forever, and and praise pours out of you. In fact, your life is to be worship offered to God. And just think also about the fact that the psalmist who wrote Psalm 117 was writing this in, in distant and vague anticipation of the Messiah, the Savior who would come and be the foundation of all of this. We sing it today, fully knowing the Lord Jesus who has come, knowing that he reigns now. How is it that the Hesed of God and the center of truth of all things comes to history, comes most particularly and powerfully and personally to you? It's in the person of Jesus, whom we now know, who reigns. That's the call to worship, to, to enjoy the Lord forever. With that in mind, consider then Uh, Number three on your outline, the object of this call. Uh, We've been talking about you and us and and the church. The reality is this psalm is not addressed to the church. It's not addressed to Israel as the church or, or to believers, really. The call is addressed to all nations. Praise the Lord, all nations, which can be and is translated the Gentiles. The people out there—it's the people relative to Israel who did not know the joy of the true God. It's addressed to all peoples. That maybe that sounds to you kids like a, a grammatical mistake. Isn't "people" already plural? Uh, but this this has in mind not so much countries as we think of them—with political countries with borders, strict borders, and so on—but people groups. The Bible says "peoples," people who are united by a religion, or ethnically, or, or something like that. Um, or we read about different people groups in the Bible, the Amorites, the Benjamites, the Jebusites, the bites, and, and so on. Um, too often, the Old Testament is viewed as maybe the Jews and God against everyone else. It's all about the Jews. That's, that's wildly off base if we ignore the fact that God was all along doing a great work through Israel. They were, they were all along to be a witness and a call to the nations to come and worship the true God. The consistent hope uh, and, and um, call throughout the Old Testament is that, that all peoples, all people groups, would know the joy of the Hesed and the truth of God. Yes, in the Old Testament there's lots of conflict and judgment and warning and so on necessarily, but, but alongside of that always and repeatedly this invitation and this hope. Psalm, 70, or psalm 47, for example, does not open with, a, with an invitation, a call to worship to Israel or to the church. It's a call to the Gentiles. Verse 1, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with songs of joy. Uh, psalm 67, the entire psalm, Psalm 67, is asking for blessing on the people of God so that Everyone in the world would come and know that blessing. Uh, Verse 3 in that psalm, Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then in some psalms, some psalms don't just state that as a a hope or a prayer, but state it as an absolute certainty that will happen one day. Psalm 86, verse 9, All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord, and will glorify your name. Psalm 22 that we'll sing later this morning. Ends with this, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship before you. So Psalm 117 is in that hope, in that vein. It's it's implicitly the call of the church to the nations, to the unbelieving world, to the life and and purpose and meaning and joy and hope that's built on the covenant love of God and, and the totally reliable and true and faithful rock that is God. That we know. Look at part B on your outline then. I want us to consider then that Psalm 117 expresses the heart of God. And and we might look more specifically even at the... the, It expresses the heart of Jesus for the nations, for all people of the world. In Matthew 28, Jesus left his disciples with, with this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Live out Psalm 117, Jesus told his disciples. He told them before in Matthew 24, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In other words, something that must happen before I come again to set all things right uh, is that you must proclaim and live out Psalm 117 to the lost, And so Jesus invites us, invited his disciples and in Psalm 117 and and many other places in the scriptures, invites you to share his heart for the lost, his call to those who don't know the joy of knowing him. Uh, He invites you into his heart for the people of of Africa and Russia and Korea and South America and and your next door neighbors. He calls us into his heart with, with a vision. of of the consummation of this. Uh, In Revelation chapter 7, for example, where we're given this, this hope and vision, Behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a vision that is. Uh, it, it's, it's already happening in part. We are part of that. Right? We are the nations. We are part of the peoples. Um, but we ought to long for that day when, when all kinds of people and all people left on earth at that point are, are standing before the throne of God, praising Him together. Just try imagining that scene. Uh, try imagining that against the reality of the world today, full of rejection of the Lord, rejection of His truth. False religion and lies and flaunting sin and um, spitting in myriad ways in the Creator's face. One day, people from every tribe, every people group, worshiping the Lord together. Do you long for that day? Do you share the heart of Jesus? Uh, John Piper comments on this psalm. Jesus Christ is building his church around the world. We are meant to think and feel and work with him in this cause. Does it, does it thrill you as it ought to be part of that, that call to the world? Uh, John Piper also famously said, and, and this fits so perfectly with this call to worship of, of Psalm 117, he said missions exists because worship doesn't. Not, not, missions doesn't exist for its own sake or just to build up the numbers of the church or something like that. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions, he goes on, is our way of saying the joy of knowing Christ is not a private or tribal or national or ethnic privilege. It is for all. And that's why we go, because we have tasted the joy of worshiping Jesus, and we want all the families of the earth included. Do you and I share the heart of Jesus for missions? And again, this certainly applies as much to your next door neighbor and, and your unsaved cousin as it does to the lost in, in Germany and Namibia or, or wherever. And I, I want you to think particularly globally about this this morning. All the nations. Ask yourself, do I share the heart of Jesus for the lost? For them to share in the, in the joy of Psalm 117, the joy of, of knowing God has said in truth. Is it right, we might ask ourselves, that daily I'm more distressed by maybe the price of gas than the fact that children grow up around the world without a knowledge of the truth? Is it right that I'm more engaged in in perhaps the latest series on Netflix than with needs and prayers of of missionaries around the world? Living out Psalm 117 in a, a faraway place, is it right that I'm regularly perhaps more, far more concerned with the advance of my career or my business or my wealth or my comfort than the advance of the kingdom of God? I want to share a, a, a quote that's a, a great example of this. I used this um, with you all a few years ago, those of you who are there, but I'll use it probably once every couple years, so um, you can get used to that. But Adoniram Judson was a missionary in the, the 19th century. Um, he dedicated his life to go to Burma, which at the time, uh, in the West, the Western world, was totally unknown, an unknown people, unknown languages, dangerous diseases, um, uh, little prospect of him probably surviving or having any gospel success there. Uh, but that was his determination in 1810 just before he left for Burma for the rest of his life, um, he, there was a, a girl he wished to marry, Ann Haseltine, uh, and so he wrote to Ann's father um, to ask him, and these are the re- words that I'll read, and, and basically he was asking, was, was his love for the lost, was his eagerness to see the nations of the world sharing in the joy of knowing Christ, was it strong enough to, to give up his daughter to this? Uh, to this this uncertain and dangerous place really without communication. Here's what he wrote. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. She did, in fact, die there. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Judson's a, a brilliant example of someone who shares the heart of Jesus in Psalm 117 uh, for the nations. If you haven't read his biography, you should. Uh, I, I can share it with you. Um, I want to make a few applications to us relative to global missions then, to our our practical taking and living out Psalm 117 in in a global sense. Again, the most obvious, in one sense, application of this is is to the people right around you, to share the gospel with with your neighbors, to live out and, and talk out your faith, invite people to worship, but I want you to think globally about this as well, about 7,000 languages in the world. About 12,000, by, by one estimation, people groups. Imagine them at the, at, the, at the throne of the Lamb on the last great day. I, I, I don't suppose that most of us are called, will be called to, to uproot and go to a far place, a far country to live this out. Uh, many have done that. Uh, many more are needed uh, to take the gospel in that way. But your role, at least, uh, can be and is, I think in the words of William Carey, a uh, famous missionary, uh, to hold the rope, to hold the rope as he described it. William Carey was a, a first missionary deep into India uh, in the 1700s, and he, he pictured his mission there like mining, uh, going plunging down into a deep, unknown, dark mine with no guide, no knowledge of what the dangers would be. And he said to a close group of friends of his, he said, I will go down if you will hold the rope. And, and one of those close friends later wrote, he said, he took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. So hold, hold the rope. Uh, do that by engaging with, with missions organizations. There are many worthy ones. Um, I, I would encourage you, those who are part of this church, at the very least, I would urge you to engage with, with RP Global Missions. Uh, God has given us um, significant and great missions around the world. Uh, I, I'd encourage you, if you're part of this church, to, to take ownership of the missionaries that you have sent, uh, that that we support, just by being part of this congregation, even if you're not Uh, very familiar with them yet. Get the the weekly newsletter with prayers that you've heard of. Um, Read the literature that we have on these missions on the table there in the back. Um, We, as a congregation, give significantly each year to the the missions and ministries of of the RPCNA. Um, Let's let's continue to do that. Let's give more if we can. Uh, You can hold the rope by giving personally for the sake of the nations, uh, knowing the joy of salvation in Christ. You can hold the rope certainly by, by praying uh, eagerly, regularly uh, for those who have, who have left home uh, to live out Psalm 117 in that particular way. Uh, you can hold the rope, or at least hold your own rope maybe uh, in that sense by kindling a heart for the lost. And you can do that first by reading God's word and simply growing in your own love and, and enjoyment of God himself that your eagerness to share that would, would grow. Uh, and, and a last practical uh, uh, suggestion for growing a heart for the lost would be to read missionary biographies. Um, they're, they're powerful and edifying. If you don't know where to start, start with Adoniram Judson or William Carey uh, or Hudson Taylor. I can give you some recommendations or lend you a book. Well, let's pray together, uh, and then we'll sing a, a gospel call and hope for the world in Psalm 22. Our Father in heaven, uh, we ask this morning that you would uh, fill us with the heart of Christ for the lost. Uh, fill us, as, as uh, Elder Bechtold read earlier, with such joy and peace and hope and believing uh, that we would call others into that joy. Help us, Holy Spirit, to long for that, that gathering of a multitude that no one could number from every nation, and every people, and every language. Uh, worshiping the Lamb. We ask all of this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.